uh, teach tonight for just a little bit from Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to read verse 8 and 9, and then skip down to verse number 15. Genesis 2, verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the garden, sorry, out of the ground, made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and is good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In verse 15, and the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden so that he could relax and never have to do anything ever again. That's not God's idea of paradise, believe it or not. But he put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. I want to talk to you for a few minutes tonight, the blessing of work. The blessing of work. Now, I know that for those that are not retired, you just wake up in the morning and you just, man, say, I am so glad I can go to work today. Or is it, man, I got to go to work today. <laughs> it's early. I wish I could sleep in a little bit longer. I know the struggle. But let me remind you that everything God has ever created has a job. Everything. And a purpose. Angels, for example. have. You know, we know that there are various types of angels. There's probably a lot more than we know about. But there are warring angels. That is, angels that fight battles, like, of course, Michael. There are angels that guard. Uh, There are angels that worship. There are seraphims and seraphims. There are ministering angels. Hebrews 1 talks about ministering angels. There are angels that have healing power and and, and, and other types of things. And angels that that impart things to people. And and so there there are different types of angels. All of them have a purpose. Like, none of them is just sitting in up in heaven, twiddling their thumbs. If I don't know if angels have thumbs or not, but none of them, if they have thumbs, they're not twiddling them, waiting on something to do. They have a job to do. Everything down to the tiniest microscopic cell has a purpose, even mosquitoes. Those little blood-sucking parasites, and no, I'm not talking about your annoying relatives tonight, since it's getting ready to enter the holiday season. Mosquitoes form an important source of biomass in the food chain, serving as food for fish, as larvae, and for birds, bats, frogs, as adult flies, and some species are important pollinators. Yes, there are millions of of species of, not millions, but there are hundreds of, of different species of mosquitoes, and only a few of those are actually ones that bite you and suck your blood. So, mosquitoes get kind of a bad rap. I know, you know, nobody's going to feel sorry for the mosquitoes getting a bad name tonight. But God has a purpose for creating those mosquitoes. Bacteria, even. Removing bacteria from surfaces is a billion-dollar industry in the world right now, and especially in the United States, especially since COVID. How many use those Clorox wipes to clean your phone down or your, or your screen or your, your keypad? And like while, while you clean the house, you might use those on your countertop or on your table. I don't, I don't know if they do their job or not, but at least it makes us feel good that we've used them. <laughs> but bacteria does have an important role. 
what we always try to get rid of also has a good purpose. There's bacteria in our bodies that helps degrade the food we eat. Uh, and helps make nutrients that are available to us and neutralize different toxins. Some bacteria is used even to produce drugs, antibiotics, and even vaccines. There is nothing that God has ever created that is fruitless, that is purposeless, or unproductive in any way. Think about that for a moment. Nothing that God has ever created lacks a purpose. And if you don't think that the purpose that you serve is very important, then try eliminating one thing from the animal kingdom and see what kind of chain reaction that that would have. Even the smallest thing like mosquitoes. Bats eat mosquitoes. And bats have an important role either. And, you know, I'm not here to talk about the environment or anything, but the point is, is that everything God created has a purpose. The first thing that God did after he created Adam, the first thing he did was he gave him a job to do. He said, uh, Genesis said that God put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Now, for sure, it was, it was a lot easier in that time than it was after the fall. Because the climate of the earth had not changed yet. It really changed drastically after the flood, really after Noah's flood, when it rained for the first time. But there was a mist that went up and watered the earth. There were not thorns. There were not thistles. There were not rocks beneath the ground. So, you know, again, in the Garden of Eden, apparently, it was, it was an easy type of job for Adam to do. But God had a role and a purpose for creating Adam. And I think the concept was God's mindset was all rule from heaven. And you rule from earth. And, and that, was, that was kind of the mindset that God had, I think. But whatever is not productive becomes idle. And, you know, you know, honestly, I've never understood some people's idea of what they consider to be retirement. And again, I'm not criticizing in any way. But I know some people, I've heard some people say this. That one day when they retire, I'm just going to sit in my rocking chair and get out when I want and just watch reruns of whatever all day. You know, there was a child actor whose name was Macaulay Calkin, and many of you know him. He starred in that 1980-something movie, Home Alone. He got so much money before he was, before he was even 18 that he literally hasn't had to work. He was retired before he was even 35. And he said... He said, on into my 20s, I had so much money that I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't need to work anymore. And so, like, he's quoted in different interviews as saying, you know, I just did what I call whatevering. Whatevering. It's whatever he wanted to do. And yet, when he did that, he ended up on alcohol and a, a severe drug addict because he lacked a purpose. But I've never understood some people's idea of, of, what, of what, like their mindset of retirement. And I can tell you that in the ministry, you never really retire. You might, you might, if you're a pastor or if you're an evangelist or missionary, you might step out of that ministry, but you step into something else. Like even, even if it's, well, I'm going to retire and have a full-time prayer ministry. I'm going to devote my time and I'm going to pray. I'm going to write books. I know men that retired and couldn't, couldn't travel anymore, but they wrote books and they mentored young ministers. Like there, there is always a role that God has for you in the kingdom of God. 
So I've never understood those, uh, those people that are like that or those that are just simply too lazy to work and make an honest living without realizing that work is a blessing from God. It keeps you out of trouble. It keeps you from staying home and becoming lazy and idle all day. And there is a deep spiritual principle to this that I'm going to get to in just a moment. So I'm just laying the groundwork right now. But work is a blessing from God to be productive, to get a job done, to complete a task. People dream often of winning the lottery. If I could just win that lottery. Did you know that over 70% of people that win the lottery continue to play the lottery? And did you know that 70% of people, 70% of people who win the lottery are broke in less than five years, and many of them dead? Ecclesiastes says this from chapter 10, The labor of the foolish wearieth every one of them, because he knoweth not how to go to the city. Verse 18 says, By much slothfulness the building decays, and through idleness of the hands the house droppeth through. So idleness gives way to laziness and slothfulness. A slothful spirit can get a hold of people so that they do not want to work. They do not want to better themselves. And even when they do find a job, they don't give it their best. They don't give it their heart. You know, they don't give it all they've got because they're lazy and slothful. And really, it boils down to it's more than just a physical thing or how you were brought out. It is a spiritual Thing that gets a hold of you. And as a result, bills are unpaid, work is undone, and things keep piling up. Some people live their whole lives like that, nothing but cycling. And here's the second principle. Whatever becomes idle is not fulfilling its purpose and is, in fact, either dying or already dead. When things become idle, and this is true spiritually, it is because that person is either dying spiritually or they are spiritually already dead. Now, it's interesting that scientists have often debated and argued about what death really is. Now, we know, we know dead when we see dead, right? I mean, we know somebody is dead. You know, I know that my great-grandmother is dead. She's been in the grave since I was about 13 years old. I hope she's dead. She's been in the grave that long. She's dead. I remember staring down at her casket. We know what it is, or we know how to spot it, but how do we define it? We could say, well, it's the absence of life. And, you know, like there are many definitions of death. James says, you know, the book of James said, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith that works is dead. So maybe a biblical definition would be the spirit or the, when the spirit leaves the body, the body without the spirit. But a scientific, one scientific definition of death is this, and I actually like this. Death is the moment when the system that maintains the far from equilibrium state ceases to exist. Now, you may know what equilibrium is. It means a calmness or a calm state of mind. That is when everything is in perfect balance and there's no resistance. We would say, well, they've maintained their equilibrium. That means that they're stable. You know, they're, they're doing good. But from a chemical standpoint, whenever those chemicals stop and, 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 and have a place of equilibrium inside you, when your heart 
is no longer beating, when there's no resistance anymore, when, when your blood is no longer flowing through your body, when, there's no, uh, when, when you reach that place of physical and chemical equilibrium, one scientific definition is said that's what death is. In other words, when you stop moving, when you stop growing, when you stop struggling, you reach a spiritual equilibrium. And it is a calmness. It is, you know, perhaps maybe a state of peace. I've heard, I've heard nurses uh, whose job it is to sit by the bedside of patients as they die, hospice nurses, etc., that will tell you that the, sometimes the most calmest place a person, a person is is just moments before their death. When their system, their body begins to shut down and, and, and everything begins to shut down and, and they, they're, they're maintaining that moment of peace and what's happening is they're reaching a chemical equilibrium when their brain's slowing down, their heart's slowing down. And so, so things, are, things are starting uh, to shut down. Many times, most of the time, they'll be asleep, you know, if, unless they you know, die by some tragedy of, of some kind. But, but if it's a hospice situation, they're usually going to die in their sleep. Many times they'll be in morphine, they'll be on drugs. And so they reach a state of equilibrium. And it's true in the spirit also. And there is a great spiritual principle here. And it is this. You need to keep moving. You must keep growing. You must keep fighting your flesh every day. And keep being involved in God's kingdom. And you can never, ever stop. Because when you do, you are in dangerous, a dangerous place of reaching spiritual equilibrium. You might feel good about it. But that's just the calm before the death. That's just the calm before your spiritual man breathes out its last breath. And it suddenly dies away and you find yourself backslidden and like Enoch in a land of wandering far from God. Let me ask you this. When was Israel's most dangerous moment in the history of their nation? It was not in the wilderness. Which experience they hated by the way as is evidenced by their constant grumbling and complaining. It wasn't in the wilderness when they had to trust in God every day for their bread, their manna to come from heaven. It wasn't uh, in the wilderness where they, where they thirsted many times. And they had to go to Moses and say, Moses, we need a miracle. Moses spoke to the rock, water came out. Or he was supposed to speak to it. He smote it twice. But water came out of the rock. You know, in one particular place, he threw a tree in the middle of a river. And the water that was bitter became sweet. And so they had to trust in God. But that was not their most dangerous moment. They did not backslide in the wilderness. You know when they backslide? Is, is not in Joshua. It, wasn't, it was not even in Joshua where they became soldiers in their promised land. And had to fight and depend on God. Lord, who are we going to send first in the battle? Lord, we got to fast and pray before this battle. Lord, we got to get rid of some sin in the camp. We got to get rid of AI or, or, or you know, we got, we have to get rid of, of different things in our life. And, and, and it kind of kept them on their toes. But it was in judges after they inherited everything and after they moved into homes that they didn't build and ate from vineyards that they did not plant. When they became idle and lost purpose, they were in a spiritually dangerous place. Look at the book of Judges, 
chapter 1. I want to read 28 through 33. And the Bible says this. The first chapter of Judges opens up like this. And it came to pass when Israel was strong. When Israel was strong. That they put the Canaanites to tribute. And did not utterly drive them out. Remember what Moses said. Get rid of them all. Don't let a one of them remain. Utterly drive them out. Neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer. But the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Neither did Zebulon drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Nor the inhabitants of Nahalal. But the Canaanites dwelt among them and became tributaries. Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Acho, nor the inhabitants of Zidon, nor of Alab, nor of Hzib, nor of Helba, or of Aphek, nor of Rehob. But the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, nor the inhabitants of Bethanath. But he dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became tributaries unto them. The thing that God told them not to do is exactly what they did. And here's why they did not drive them out. It was simply too much work. It was laziness and idleness. We've been fighting battles for 40 years. You know, we wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. And we fought battles there. We had to depend on God for our bread and water every day. You know, we've seen miracles and thank God for that. And, and here we are. We've had a whole generation of people that are fighting all throughout the book of Joshua. They fought all the inhabitants of the land and they won a bunch of battles. And they finally came to the place and said, you know what, forget it. We'll just make them all tributaries. Fast forward a few hundred years and you'll see them completely backslidden and being taken in captivity to Babylon. Exactly what God said that they would ha that would happen, but it happened in the book of Judges, which is a book filled with constant backsliding and deeply tragic stories of murder and rape and incest and all kinds of horrible things happen in the book of Judges. And you think when you read Judges, you think, well, what in the world is going on here? And the answer is right here in the first chapter. They did not utterly drive them out. When was King David's most dangerous moment? From 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. And, but David tarried still at Jerusalem, and it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And the rest, as they say, is history. Evening tide. In the evening, which begins around 3 o'clock, David arose from his bed. It has to be asked, why was David taking a nap in the middle of the afternoon when God made him a warrior? And what happened to that little you know, 13, 14-year-old rudery boy that stood up against Goliath with a stone and a slingshot? You come to me with the sword and spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of the armies of God whom you have defied. What happened to that fighting spirit in David? 
somewhere along the way, he reached a state of spiritual equilibrium. You see, God made David a warrior, but David was not fulfilling his God-given purpose. And that led to sin when he stepped out of that role. And not just any sin, but a sin that would deeply impact his family and his future. Even now, we don't talk about David or even mostly think about David without thinking about his adultery and his murder. In a moment of spiritual equilibrium, David got lazy and gave into idleness and spiritual fatigue. And as a result, he lost the thing that mattered to him most, his son Absalom. Matter of fact, the prophet's... Uh, the prophet of God, Nathan, came to David and gave him this word from 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now, therefore, the swords will never depart from your house, David, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus say the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give, you, and give them unto your neighbor. And he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it in secret. But I will do this thing before Israel and before all the sons. The sword never left David's house. There was always fighting that was going on. There was always uprisings. He always had to look over his shoulder from that moment forward. The peace of God that was in his kingdom left him. And it cost him his son Absalom. It was Absalom who drove his father David out of Jerusalem in shame, exactly as the prophet Nathan had prophesied, and slept with all of his concubines on the rooftop of his palace, as God had said, you did it in secret, but I'm going to do it before all of Israel. And when his son Absalom was hanging by his hair from that tree, and Joab and his men shot him through with those arrows and gathered around him, ten men, the Bible says, and stabbed him over and over and over again through his heart until he died, hanging there from an oak tree by his hair, King David knew a pain like no other when he said this in 2 Samuel chapter 18. And the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he wept, thus he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would to God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. When David wept hard for his son Absalom, his mind might have went back to that moment of weakness on the top of his palace when he was taking a nap. In the middle of the afternoon when he should have been in battle. If only I had joined Uriah in battle. If only I had not been idle. If only, if only, if only. But instead he had to look at the death of his most beloved son, Absalom. Because what you're seeing here is not just tears of sorrow, but likely tears of deep, deep regret. And indeed, regret is a horrible tormentor. When you realize what could have been done, but instead you squandered your years and you wasted them. And you gave them up to, to do so many other things instead of being involved in God's kingdom and doing the things that God has called you to do. From Ecclesiastes chapter 12 says this, Remember now your creator in the days of your youth. While the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Believe it or not, there are years, whether you're 51 like me or 12 years old or 91, if you haven't reached that place yet, you will reach a place where, as the Bible says, you will have no pleasure in those years. There is no deeper regret in older ages when strength begins to wane than knowing you've wasted your youth and did nothing or very little for the kingdom of God. 
the regret of knowing you threw it all, all of your good years away, the regret of knowing you didn't give it all you had, but instead you held back and you did not fully commit everything that you had to give out. And listen to this from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 2. This is from the New Living Translation. Uh, and I want to read this uh, down to verse 7. He says, Remember him before the light of the sun, moon, and stars is dim in your old eyes. And rain clouds continually darken your sky. He's talking about your eyesight going. Remember him before your legs, the guards of your house, start to tremble. And before your shoulders, the strong men stoop. Remember him before your teeth, your few remaining servants stop grinding. And before your eyes, the women looking through the windows see dimly. Remember him before the door to life's opportunity is closed. And the sound of work fades. Now you rise at the first chirping of the birds, but then all their sounds will grow faint. Remember him before you become fearful of falling and worrying about danger in the streets. Before your hair turns white like an almond tree in bloom. And you drag along without energy like a dying grasshopper. And the caperberry no longer inspires sexual desire. He goes on, remember him before you near the grave. Your everlasting home when the mourners will weep at your funeral. Yes, remember your creator now while you are young. Before the silver cord of life snaps and the golden bowl is broken. Don't wait until the water jar is smashed at the spring and the pulley is broken at the well. For then the dust will return to the earth and the spirit will return to God who gave it. The message of the wise man, of the wise old preacher is this. Work for God while you can. Do all that you can while you can. Because those bitter days will approach us all. Amen. When I get 80 plus years old, I want to be like Sister Wallard. Still going strong for God. Still serving in the kingdom of God. Still involved, still volunteering, still giving of her life away to the kingdom of God. That's what I want to be. I don't want to grow old and tired. You know what? The only way to grow old and tired is if you stop moving. That's a lot, you know, we, we talk about, I know an 82-year-old 80, man that still goes out and farms every day, gets up before the sun rises, bales hay with kids one-third his age, 82 years old, 80, sorry, he's 81 years old. How does he do it? He's done it for years. He'll tell you, I don't know any other way to do it. This is all we know. He's an old farmer, strong. You know what, if he stopped doing that, sat in his rocking chair, he'd be dead in two years. His strength would fade. You use it or you lose it. It's the same way in the kingdom of God. There are talents and abilities that God wants to tap into in this church. And it's a use it or lose it. Work for God while you can. Never stop moving with God. Jesus said it like this in John 9. I will must work the works of him while it is set, while I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, for the night comes when no man can work. 
And there's different ways of interpreting that, but here's, here's one thing that is absolutely true. There is going to come a nighttime that is going to come on your life, a nighttime where the windows of opportunities of things that you can do for God will narrow greatly. And right now, for most of us, that opportunity is those opportunities are pretty much wide open. We can do a lot of things for the kingdom of God. We can teach Bible studies. We can clean the church. We can be involved in music ministry. There's a million things we could do just in this church alone, but there is going to come a day when those when that window is going to close and you're not going to be able to do as much as you used to be able to do you're not going to have as much strength and things are going to go our things are start going to go wrong physically and so the 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 message of of the man of from ecclesiastes was work while you can the single greatest gift you can give to your kids is for them to see you joyfully Joyfully working for God's kingdom and making that a priority. If you want your kids, I'm speaking now to those that have children or teenagers, if you want your kids to grow up and serve the Lord, that's how you do it. You bring your kids with you. You know, whenever, whenever my wife and I were starting that church uh, many years ago, Luke and Lane were, were just so little. And the only place we could find in the city that would let us have services that we could afford, that is, was the American Legion building. Bless their hearts. Thank God for those men. However, we would rent the building out on Wednesdays and Sundays. They were so kind. They even, you know, he said, just tell me what you can afford. I mean, they were just really sweet about it. Great, great group of men. But if they had their meetings before our services, which most of the time they did, we would, my wife and I would come in on Sunday mornings with beer cans and, and uh, I kid you not, beer cans and cigarette butts scattered all over that yellow pine hardwood floor. That was faded. And, and it was those, um, you know, the walls wasn't sheetrock. It was that 70s stuff. What do you call it? That, that paneling, that yellow pine paneling. Half of it was, I'm not complaining. I am complaining. I'm sorry. <laughs> Pray for me. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and I mean, this was our routine. This is what we had to do. Sunday mornings, we had to get up. We had to be at the church. Church started at 10 o'clock. We had to be there by 6 o'clock in the morning because we would spend two to three hours cleaning the church out. We would first, and we took our kids, we took Luke and Lane with us. They were, they were just little bitty things then. You know, Lane was crawling around in the diaper, and Luke was about two years old, but we took them with us. And, you know, they were more so in the way than anything else. But, you know, we had to set up the sound, so we had to set everything. The first thing we did was we would walk through the whole building and we'd pick up all the beer cans and the cigarette butts. We'd put that in a, in, put that in trash bag, take it out to the dumpster. Next thing we did, it was, an, as I said, a yellow pine hardwood floor. And the whole surface area of the sanctuary was probably about half the size of the sanctuary, counting the platform. So, so that's about how, how big it was, if you can envision that. And we had to get a bucket. I'm in my suit. We had to get a bucket and mop the floor because it, was, it had dust in it. You know how hardwood floors are. And then we had uh, to, to, uh, to set up all of the chairs 
we had to set out about 50 different chairs. All we had was metal chairs, we, and we set those out. Then we had to set out the sound system. We had, uh, we had two speakers that we hauled up, and in, in, in we had a focus. I don't know how we hauled all this stuff back in this little. We had a 2000, I think it was a 2001 Ford Focus. Somehow, it all fit. But we had, we had two speakers that we set up at the front of the building. Uh, we know where like, there was a little, like, maybe a six or, or eight-inch raised platform of sorts. And, and, uh, and, and we would set up those speakers on uh, two tripods, and we had, we had a 50-foot snake that we would put, that we would plug in the speakers, and we had a couple of microphones, corded mics, we would plug those in, and we would cord the snake all the way back to a little sound system that we bought from Legacy Music and Lee Summit, which went out of business with the pandemic, but they were good folks, they helped us, and they gave us a great deal on that. It had maybe seven or eight different channels in it. It might, might, it might have been better than the one we got here. I don't know, with have all the problems we have in it. But we didn't have any trouble with it. That's all I'm saying, okay? <laughs> we had a keyboard. We had a full-size keyboard that, that Tanya would play. And we would put that in the back. We put that in the back. Again, I don't know how we fit all this stuff in there. But we had it down to a science. And we would set all that up. Along with all the cords and all the wires, and all, we complain about the 10 minutes we got to set up here. That, y'all don't know the struggle. <laughs> we are blessed here. <laughs> but we would set it up. I'd give Luke a microphone out of the car and say, hey, buddy, help me take this in. You know, he was more in the way than anything. I could have done it on my own, but I made him feel like he was a part of it because above all else, it was a priority of me of mine to take my kids with me in ministry. To take my kids with me. And on Bible study nights, I taught Bible studies, you know, once, maybe twice throughout the week. And I would alternate taking Luke and Lane with me. And, and I would have them, I would let them pick out a couple of toys from home. And we'd go to the Bible study place. And on the way there, I'd always tell them the same thing. I'd say, hey, buddy, if you're good tonight, we'll go by McDonald's afterwards. There are many gray areas when you pair it. <laughs> That's one of them. <laughs> Sometimes it'd be, hey, I'll buy you a snack at the local Quick Trip. See, Quick Trip can be used for good purposes. And Luke would sit there, and he would color in his coloring book or play with his little toy, whatever it was he picked out. And afterwards, he would always remind me, we'd go and buy McDonald's, Dad. Yep, I promise you, you were good. Same, same with Lane. They saw me teaching Bible studies. I never wanted to do ministry on my own, no matter how small it was, if it was cleaning the church or how big it was, if it was pastoring or teaching Bible studies. Every single time we stayed, stayed in that little building, you know, trying to, in trying to help people and counsel people, we prayed backstars through the Holy Ghost. We, we baptized people. We prayed. We, so many great things happened during that season of our life for the kingdom of God. But our kids were right there to see every single bit. And they were part of it. And now, Luke and Lane both feel a call into the ministry. Luke just taught a Bible study right before church. Today, and he's speaking downstairs, by the way. We baptized one of his friends on Sunday, both Luke and Lane both had P7 clubs that they started in their high school. Luke is actually trying to start a campus ministry. He's trying to find somebody to sponsor him at UMKC. Teaching Bible studies, working for the kingdom of God. Where did it start? It happened because I refused to do ministry alone. 
kids who grow up to serve God and do great things in God's kingdom nearly always have one thing in common. They have the parents who are busy for God's kingdom. And Luke and Lane both have a call of God on their life. Lane is a great Bible quizzer. He's a, he's a witness at his, at his school. He's started a Peace Heaven Club. Dozens of kids have came through and had the gospel taught to them because of that Bible study. Luke Lane's taught Bible studies too as well, not just even outside of the Peace Heaven Club. I'm not bragging. I'm just trying to help you see a big picture here that if you want your kids to grow up and say, man, I love God. I love the kingdom of God. Then the way to do it is take them to a Bible study or a prayer meeting on a Saturday night instead of a Royals game or a football game and show them how big their priorities are for the kingdom of God. Take your kids with you. Moses himself was a great prophet, but one of the big things that I've always had against Moses was he left his wife and his two boys behind. When he went into, when he, whenever he went into Egypt, he left his wife and his two kids alone instead of taking them with him. But what a great opportunity that would have been if his two little boys had been there to see the water of the waters of the Red Sea part and they walked across on dry ground and to see all the great things that happened in Egypt. What a miracle and a witness it would have been. But instead, we never hear anything more about Moses' kids. Or his wife. And a matter of fact, his father-in-law had to take his wife and his kids and bring them to him. And I, I, I don't know if that was by chance or if he just thought, hey, you know, maybe you forgot you got a wife and a kid too. It's sad when people, when men do ministry and even great things for God and they leave their families behind. Involve your kids. Oh, but their kids, you know, oh, but they need to sleep in. Oh, but they need this, they need that. You know what they need? They need to see you working in the kingdom of God. They need to know how awesome it is. They need to know it's a joy to serve God in his kingdom. Joyfully serving God. <laughs> Mark chapter 10, as I close. <coughs> Verse 28. Musicians can come. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed you. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels. But he shall receive an hundredfold now. In this time houses, brethren, sisters, mothers, children, lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last on the last shall be first. Do you understand what Jesus has said? How much is God going to give back to you? A hundredfold. Now you think about that. If there was a place where you could invest your money and it was a guaranteed 10% return, you would be all over that. What about 20%? What about 30%? What if I said, if you put your money here in 10 years, you will double your money? How much would you put in that? What if you could go back in time and invest stock in Walmart when it first began? Let's stand tonight. Now what if I said this? What if I told you that it's not just your money, but it's your time and your talents? And if you put that in the kingdom of God, God will give it back to you a hundredfold. Not just in the next life, but you're going to see it in this life. And it was like God was saying, all those times you made me a priority when you were, when, whenever you were doing all these things, now I'm going to make 
you are priority. Remember whenever King David was, was, was uh, sitting one day and just at, a, around an old, just at a random, he thought, he said, I want to build God a house. And he went to the prophet and he said, you know, what do you think, prophet? Can I build God a house? And the prophet prayed about it and God told the prophet to go back and tell David, never in the history of the nation of Israel have I ever said anything about the kind of house that I live in and how kings would live in palaces, but I dwelt in this little bitty raggedy temple made of badger skins that you drug around for 40 years in the wilderness. But you thought of this, and it came out of your heart. And so this is what I'm going to do. Not only am I going to let you build a house, but your son is going to build it. You're going to prepare it, but your son Solomon is going to build it. Not only that, but I am going to build you a house. And he went on to say, as a matter of fact, I'm going to make you a house. I'm going to make you a house. And now we talk about the household of David. And we talk about how this, you know, and all, again, with all the mistakes that David made, one thing he had was he was a man after God's own heart, and his heart was always in the right spot. And when he did sin, with the correction of the prophet, he got it right with God. He took his punishment like a man. He didn't whine about it. He took it like a man and moved on with his life in the grace of God. But now we talk about how Messiah came from the loins of David and how the Lord said, you know, there will never cease uh, to be a king from your loins. And now, of course, Jesus is king. He is currently reigning right now. He is the son of David in the flesh. Whatever you do for the kingdom of God is going to be given back to you. And you know what? The greatest joy that you could ever have is not if you get up, you know, if it, you know, if you give a million dollars away, if you got $10 million in your bank account and you give all that away and God never does anything for you, but he makes sure that your kids are called into the ministry and one of them might be a prophet and one of them might be an apostle and one of them might be a church planner. You know what? God has gave back to you a hundredfold. Because there is no greater joy that I have than to see my children walking in the truth. So we got to stir up ourselves and realize that working for the kingdom of God is not a burden, but it's something to do joyfully. Amen. Because I want to avoid spiritual equilibrium. I want to avoid spiritual death. I want my kids to come along with me. I don't want to leave my kids behind in, you know, behind out in the desert when I'm in when I'm parting Red Seas and when I'm seeing great things happen in my life. I want to involve them. That's what's on my heart tonight. Lift your hands to the Lord. The more you burn for Jesus, the more he'll fill that oil up. Come on, God hasn't called you to be stagnant. He's called you to devote yourself to the service of the king. And he'll give it back to you a hundredfold, I promise you. In one form or another, he said, it's written in his word tonight. Would you like to come and just, just talk to God tonight? Hallelujah, Jesus.